Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Poet John O'Donohue once wrote, Many of us have made our world so familiar that we do not see it anymore. An interesting question to ask yourself at night is, what did I really see this day? Today's topic will be central bank digital currencies or CBDCs. Many of you that are listening are sure familiar with this from one extent to another. And I've had conversations with a number of my clients who've expressed concerns that this could, in fact, the financial system of the not too distant future. Now, before I bring on today's guest, I want to make you all aware of an organization that I have to admit in my 37 years in this industry, literally just learned about this three weeks ago. It's called the Bank of International Settlements or BIS. It was established in 1930. The BIS is owned by 63 central banks representing countries from around the world, which actually account for 95% of the world's GDP. The mission of the BIS is to support central banks' pursuit of monetary and financial stability through international cooperation and to act as a bank for the central banks. They represent themselves as being independent, but obviously that's not really true because of the fact that they're owned by the central banks themselves. Today's guest is an independent investor and researcher. She holds a degree in theology from Trinity College in Dublin, and her name is Melissa Shimei. So I want to welcome Melissa Shimei to Upthinking Finance. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me. So I think let's just jump right in. You had a quote from a talk you gave in Bath, the Better Way Conference, a couple of months ago, and you said that the crisis point of the economic time boom of 2008 is where we find ourselves. And so maybe you could elaborate that on that and then connect it to this whole issue of digital currencies. Well, that's the why of the CBDCs. Since 1971, when the U.S. as reserve currency came off the gold standard, where it was backed by gold, it has been a race to the bottom since then. That was the beginning of the end of the fiat currency. Every fiat currency fails. There has been around 5,000. Everyone returns to zero due to inflation of the money supply debasement. And this one is no different. Um, That crashed in 2008 under the weight of the greed of debt that was accumulated on that. And they managed to kick the can down the road 2019 with QE, quantitative easing. In August of 2019, there was a meeting at Jackson Hole where BlackRock um, suggested that central banks go direct with the money printer then. The crisis in the repo market in September, it's almost as if they anticipated a crisis and what should be done in that crisis. And then the October event 201 and then the financial lockdown from then. So like every fiat currency before, this one has failed. And in order to keep the game going, introduce a new currency, their proposed currency this time is central bank digital control. It's complete individual monetary policy, a complete control system where they can dictate where and when um, you transact within the economy. It's a complete removal of your freedoms and you don't have the freedom to transact. Every other freedom can be taken away. When you remove that one, you can't have very much freedom. So who are they competing against? Because I read through that that BIS report that you introduced me to. 
<laughs> and it's clear there's, I guess, from what I gleaned from it, the central banks are clearly trying to promote this centralized, controlled currency, like you said. But I mean, who are the competitors? Are there competitors? The only competitors to it is the crypto market, Okay, which is more speculative asset. My thesis on it is that really intelligent people from 2009, just after the financial collapse of 2008, that got all these really intelligent people on to solve and evolve blockchain issues and to blockchain absolutely everything. And they were financially rewarded for that. And now they kind of don't need them anymore. So they are very much challenging the crypto market. The latest IMF report is concerning how to tax um, crypto. So in India, I think every transaction, there's a 0.01% or 0.02% tax on every transaction. So it's very easy to weaponize taxation and crush crypto. Um, they're currently here. I'm not sure where you are, but they're closing the on-ramps. So there's you're only allowed to put in maybe a thousand, two thousand pounds per month um, onto the exchanges or to buy crypto with. They haven't closed the off-ramps because right now, in order for you to use crypto, it's not used as a currency. It's starting to get a little bit of traction, but very little. So in order for you to use crypto, you tend to convert it back into fiat and buy what you need to buy. If they close the off-ramps, what you do, your crypto is stuck as digital air, unless it actually starts getting used as a currency. The reason I think that they wouldn't close the off-ramps is that there's so many people with that would force them to actually use it as a currency and then it becomes a threat. Other than that, it's precious metals because they're physical precious metals because they have no counterparty risk. You hold them. So I know when you gave your talk, I mentioned before, you really kind of broadened out the it's not just a way of transacting business, the, the tentacles into a person's life extend or the government's tentacles into a person's life extended almost every possible facet. And that's a concern I know people have expressed to me with what little they know. So maybe could you elaborate on that? Because I thought you have a good way of explaining the longer term ramifications of this whole CBDC. Right now, I think that they're going to bring it in as a fast payment system and they're going to get everybody hooked on the convenience because we do love convenience. Um, off it if they have time before the current system collapses because the, the current system it's a controlled demolition of the current system and um, slow down the inevitable with the cbdc they believe that if they have complete control over the economy that things like this won't happen again personally i think that although the free market isn't perfect it is the best that we have because it's everybody given a vote with their pound with central bank digital currency they want to move towards they can dictate especially with this fictitious esg agenda they can decide how much fuel allowance that you have and that can absolutely be programmed they can determine how much meat there was a report in 2019 funded by the world bank where they spoke of 60 grams of meat um, by 2030, ideally zero um, to be consumed, um, two and a half thousand calories. And um, so they can dictate how many calories that you can consume. With clothing, they're even moving into that you can have ideally eight pieces of clothing, no, three pieces of clothing, but up to eight pieces of clothing per year by 2030. That's what they're actually talking about. That Now, it has got deeper, which was always my suspicion, because IMF and BIS previously came out with the suggestion and their latest report that I spoke to you about is tokenization. 
So not content with controlling where and when you spend your money in the economy, they can dictate that you only allow to spend it within a five mile radius. If you look at the identity in a digital world, it tells you how they're going to do it. And that's a WEF report from 2018, where it tells you how they're going to get in the digital ID, which is a precursor for central bank digital currency. And that will dictate what goods, services and information you have access to or conversely what is shut off to you. That's their words. They plan to get it in through healthcare, through internet access, through access to government funding. It's already up and running in India with the Adar app. You have the DIA app in Ukraine which only came out in 2020 and already there is 65% adoption of the legible population. Then they moved to tokenization, which is the BIS report, where they're almost creating parallel economy. So you have the economy that's real that we live in. They want to create a digital economy where every one of your pounds, euros, yens, whatever it is, is tracked, but also your assets, all of your assets in a digital wallet. With that, initially, it'll be, say, the the assets that need to be registered. So if it's a house, it will be so fast because instead of having to wait in the close of a house, it's just done in an instant. But then that your house has been tokenized. And when you hear tokenized, you need to hear program. That means that they can dictate the future sale of that house, your ownership over that house, If it can or can't be sold, at what price it can or can't be sold, does it meet the ESG criteria? They have complete control over every pound, euro, yen and every asset in the global economy. That's their plan. Um, Sounds very ambitious. To me, it sounds as if it's almost a panic because they're in danger of losing control of the monetary system, which is the source of their power. I read something interesting that you referred me to the annual report and then I found this other thing, which was kind of updated commentary on the whole crypto program. And they say legislation may need to be enacted or adjusted to specifically authorize the issuance and distribution of a retail CBDC. And then it gives examples of this legislation to include changes to the central bank charter, legislation, other areas related to payments or to the constitution itself. I mean, it's not like anybody's hiding this as long as you're willing to read through 180 pages of stuff. So let me ask you this, Melissa, who is they in your mind? Who is they? They are central banks and Wall Street. That's who's basically controlling. It's it's hard to say the global economy, but in a way it is. If you look at, let's take BlackRock. Um, So they um, had control over the gold mines, say about 5% of the S&P in 1998. Flash forward 20 years later, they have 20%. Um, it's a prediction, say, in another two decades that it'll be 40% plus. So if you have that amount of power, then government and countries cease to exist. That's the move to stakeholder capitalism where these unelected leaders who provide everything, provide the businesses, who control the businesses, have totalitarian power. We no longer need government. That's the move to total globalization. That's what the ESG is about, that they can enforce their will. It's creating a currency out of carbon, which is something that we really need to be concerned about, being beings that exhale carbon. And there is the possibility, I mean, we've seen the one-child policy in China. Do we really think that it's not even a remote possibility that they might say, well, you need enough carbon credits to have a child? Um Because they're certainly going to do it with, do you have enough carbon credits to run a business? And then that's already in 
carbon credits is a huge industry. It's very um, lucrative. And so they want to impose that onto the individual. If you issue those carbon credits, that's quite a powerful position to be in. Or if you have any influence over the regulation of those carbon credits and who has that, it's these multinationals. It's almost as if there's a multinational global takeover and we give them their power because we vote for them. We don't directly vote for them because we always say that non-elected. But when you're voting with your pound, euro, yen, you're voting for them. So just that's how you withdraw your vote. So when you say Wall Street, that's like BlackRock, Vanguard, all the usual suspects. And then the ESG, of course, really connects to the Davos crowd slash World Economic Forum, which are all these industries, which I brought this up to people before, like clients of mine. And for whatever reason, it's hard for some people to either get over the hump or try to spend time asking the question, these so-called wealth management firms that are supposed to be helping people build up their retirement and all that are connected to an organization, like you said earlier, that wants us to own nothing by 2030. And I think when we spoke before, get us on some kind of a perpetual rental program of everything. People don't really take the time, I don't think, as a whole to reconcile that. So let me ask you this then, because I know when you mentioned you gave your talk, you, you had brought up, as you just said, you vote with your money and where you spend and who you're supporting and who you're not. And we've seen the fallout here with the Anheuser-Busch. That's been a good example that continues actually to just get worse and worse for them. So certainly, but they don't seem to be doing anything to change that, which is, I suppose, another there's a reason for that too. But what about like the BRICS and some of these other alliances? I mean, what do you see as maybe macro things that are going on that potentially are obstacles for this whole central bank agenda? I wouldn't say, well, you have a global fracturing right now um, of BRICS versus the G7 West, whatever you want to call it. The BRICS are now accounting for over 2% of the global population. So the BRICS tend to be the ones that have all the rare earths, they have all the commodities, and they're the ones that are actually the producers, we're the consumers. And they are intending, openly now intending to create a new currency. There's the move of the petrol dollar to maintain dollar reserve status. That's being left behind. And there's now trade in yuan. They're more advanced in their CBDCs. They're top of the line in their CBDCs, but they're just leaving the West behind because we have nothing. They're moving towards a new currency, which will be, it seems to be a basket of, let's say, 20 commodities. And the idea that commodities can be consumed, so it's really difficult to maintain the lack of volatility within that because they're consumed and created. The idea is to either tether that to gold or maybe price commodities in grams of gold. So they're moving towards, the central banks have been prolifically buying up gold. China and Russia have been prolifically buying up gold. But the move is away from the current economy is um, a debt-based consumer economy, where we have been encouraged to be just consume, consume, consume. And then products became less efficient. The bill structure wasn't um, as good of quality because we needed to consume every two years. We needed a new washer dryer every two years. We needed a new car. There's issues with your car every three years. So that's the, you'll know nothing and be happy. Um, we can see how they want to do that with tokenization. Um, you will rent what you need. This is their intention for a new economy where everything is on subscription base and you rent it out should you have enough social carbon credits and um, you have access to that and they own everything that moves away from the need to constantly produce and they can go back to actually building a better build 
inequality, which I would be in favor of, but it's the never owning it. For them, that's a customer for life. It's an unending revenue stream. That's very beneficial in an aging demographic where there isn't going to be as much money slushing around for consumption. Tell me if I'm hearing this right. So basically this, I call it the Eastern Alliance, (laughs) whatever, but this BRICS, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's just, it's countries going off and doing their own thing, but we still have, I guess, the G7, the countries alliance that we're a part of, you being in the UK and me over here in the US, that doesn't really impact their ability to to run their own central, this currency and implement all these things you're talking about. There almost sounds like they're two separate things. Is that what you're telling me? They're more advanced than their central bank digital currency. They're moving ahead. So it's not that we want to be more like them. In some aspects, yes. What has happened is America has exported dollars and got back stuff, which has been a great deal for America. And now that deal's over. The dollar excessively weaponized and that deal has come to an end. And the BRICS are basically the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So these countries are coming together to end dollar dominance and the control of the dollar. So America... And the West in general needs to go back and look at what do we have to offer. We're back in the real world now where you need goods. You need to have something that you produce in order to sell. So what do we have to offer? And we have hollowed out manufacturing in general. And we're very much a service economy. And we need to move away from that. So there has to be changes there. So they're trying to micromanage that. Because there'll be huge civil unrest when people start losing their jobs. People realize that right now with MQA, they're supporting the bubbles and it's a super bubble right now. They're not supporting the economy because when the bubbles of stock, bond and property, people will realize that what they think is their wealth is numbers on a screen. You may as well get out your calculator and say, that's what my wealth is. It's not real. There is no money. Um, It's debt. And in reality, there isn't really any debt because an inflationary monetary system. So in order to pay off the debt, they just borrow more money, they pay off the debt, and that's where we are. So I would expect when people realize that there's no backing to any of this, that could be civil war, when people realize they don't have their pensions, their property, where they think that because their house is maybe worth 500000 and 10 years later it's worth 750,000. People love that idea, but they don't really realize that it's the same house. Unless you've added a pool of tennis court, it's the same house. It just makes you feel better, and then you pay more taxes on the higher bracket. Okay, so here's a question. (laughs) I'm trying to look for, like, I'm seeing this as this coordinated effort. When you talk about they and who's coordinating it, I mean, you hear a lot about the elites versus the everybody else in this certain segment, the top 1%, whatever, how it gets labeled. I mentioned when we spoke a couple of weeks ago about a guy in Scotland, an economist named Russell Napier, and he talks a lot about how the EU, this he calls it the EU experiment. It has basically failed and there's continuing signs. You have Macron trying to, from what I've read, he's starting to try to worm his way in potentially into a BRICS conversation. And you've got these countries that are starting to separate out. Does that, in your mind, with you being there, represent any kind of a pushback or a threat? I guess I'm seeing this in absolute terms. Either this happens or it doesn't. Maybe I'm not seeing it right. Does that make sense what I'm kind of explaining? Well, I would say that the Nord Stream was very detrimental to Europe because you have Germany were the greatest sufferers of that, and they're the economic powerhouse of Europe. So this idea of a United States of Europe is now 
falling apart and people are going back to wanting to have sovereignty in their country and you have like the WHO treaty trying to make a power grab. There's all of these power grabs everywhere. You look that these NGOs are pushing for a grab and it is like that kind of narcissistic relationship when the person realizes that they're about to lose control that they just go completely in control like they're not even trying to hide it anymore that to me is actually the most worrying the amount there's always been a tiptoe towards where they want to go but now there just seems to be a race to the end and they're trying to create as much chaos um in the general public as they possibly can of racism, homophobia, transphobia, um, men versus women, absolutely everything because when we're busy fighting against ourselves and judging each other, it lets them overarch and go straight on ahead with their digital prison because that's what they're moving us into. None of this is possible though without internet access and a smartphone. And that's my thing. Your phone is your prison warden. And <laughs> who wants to stop this? Just stop being so reliant. It's brilliant. It's the technology is fabulous, and we want to keep the technology. We just don't want it to be our prison warden. But we need to learn to step away. Um, at my age, I grew up more of my life than without a phone than with a phone, and we did just fine. But in that BIS report, you probably read that they were saying it's like your phone. So it's fine. It's like your phone. You can get all these apps on it. We're just providing the service. But we sounds do. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're all it. So get you addicted to the convenience of it, of the fast payments, and then add in what I'm saying about the capabilities of control of what money, how you spend your money, what money you can have access to, where you can go with it, how many states you need, how you can fly. That's not going to be implemented straight away because they know that they would get rebellion. Could be implemented under universal basic income. But we did have rations in the war. It's when you, we have so much normalcy bias that we can't even look back to history and see how close we are to past history and how things were. We seem to have blinkers on. We just don't see that until it happens. And that's what we are walking into. That's what we're walking future generations into. And we do not want that for our children. We want them to be able to find their way in the world, find out why they are in this world. Because that's what everybody's objective to. But why am I here? Because it's not to pay off a mortgage and die. That doesn't make right. sense. It has to be more reason. <laughs> and that's what we want for our children. But they want to crush that. It's that narcissistic personality that always manages to get its way into power, and now it's being threatened. So let me ask you this. I mean, this is personal, and if it's too personal, just tell me. <laughs> but I mean, when did you start to really see this stuff? I mean, speaking for myself, I think I shared with you on the phone, the short of it was, it was really the beginning of the COVID and a conference call I was on with a wealth firm that just was giving advice that just seemed so completely out of left field and incongruous to the moment is when the light bulb went on and I got on this kind of journey of searching for truth. And the more you search, the more you start to see. And how long has it been for you? Can I ask you that? It would go back to 90s for me when I would, I was always, this is Christian child, but 90s is when you kind of started looking into it. But you walked away because you're going, okay, well, listen, the system works. Nothing's going to happen until it breaks. In 2008, everybody expected that that was the end. Um, QE worked for a while, but during this, the reason that I never once bought into the whole COVID narrative is because I'd seen the 2019, you had seen the BlackRock 
going direct. Then you had seen one month later what they anticipated happening, the markets overheating the repo crisis where the Fed had to step in with the money printer. And then one month later, Event 201. So you kind of watching to see what was going to happen then. I never would have thought that it would have got to this magnitude, but I think it's that order from chaos kind of idea. So that if there's as much chaos as possible and they had to shut down the economy because they had to cool it. Mathematically, debt is doomed to collapse. It can't keep going. Eventually, the head eats so much of the tail that there's nothing left. But if they cool the economy, which is what they're trying to do now with interest rates, they're trying to take all of your extra money out of your pocket. So by raising interest rates, if you have a mortgage, especially here, we're predominantly, I would say, on variable rate mortgage. That's why I've been banging on about people getting a fixed rate. So then if you're paying more on your mortgage, then you don't have as much to go out and go out for meals, etc. In order for this to work, they have to get rid of small to medium businesses. By raising interest rates, a lot of those businesses are hooked on the cheap debt in order to function. So that makes it non-profitable. Plus you have it from the other side with inflation that there's less customers because people have less money to spend. They can't afford their debt. That's going to crush them. That's why these businesses, regardless of the effect on their customers, they need cheap debt. So if they know the way the new system is going to work with green finance, um, it's already in action in Japan. So if you have a high ESG score, you will get an interest rate of maybe half a percent. If you don't, your interest rate could be six, seven percent. It's not viable as a business option. So that's why they're jumping on board. But I think they're, it, they're starting to realize why we do need the cheap debt. We also need the customers and they're trying to run that balance. The more that happens, the more ESG will be challenged. And we know that it's not based on anything other than creating a commodity and a currency from carbon. It's not to reduce carbon. It does nothing. I think it's apparently 84, 86% does absolutely nothing to reduce carbon. So it's not about that. But then you have these big data warehouses, some of them as big as, because data is very important to them. That is the new gold, energy is the new currency. So they have these big, massive seven football fields, but they actually have very few people working in them. So they would be ESG high, and then they'll have a right side rivers so they can cool them from that. So they're deliberately being built because they know the ESG is coming in. But the more it's challenged, and the more people start asking questions, the more difficult it is to adapt. Information, we are in an information war. They did identify in Event 201 that information would be difficult and a lot of us were silenced for factual information, not any thoughts at all. Just if I would post a screenshot of government data, I would get a ban on social media. I don't anticipate the pivot that was happening because then this it started to be a means, but in the means, a kernel of truth was in it and that information was being passed on. They're going to have to get control of the internet if they don't get control of the internet. The information is because it's being shared. The, if you think of what social media was before this, um, it was recipes, funny things. Politics really, Twitter, yes, there was a little bit of politics in Twitter. It was more that frame, but you had Instagram and uh, Facebook that weren't that way at all. And there's just an absolute onslaught of it right now. So the information's getting out. And these people that are putting the information out there are backing it up for receipts. It's not in foil hat. It's no, I actually read the BIS report and there's take for it. So have a look at it yourself. That's very dangerous too, because when people start to realize the truth, the only thing that's going to get it out of their control 
is a shift in public psychology. That's what causes hyperinflation. And um, people realize that, well, I better buy a car now or I better buy my groceries, more groceries this week because if I go next week, um, it's going to cost a little bit more. So that and that creates more supply shortages, which rather puts up inflation. And it's very easy to tip into hyperinflation. And when people start to realize my pension isn't doesn't really exist, it's a Ponzi scheme with a demographic issue because there isn't enough people paying in. And there's two people, we're at the height of people cashing out. Oh, I'm just going to take mine in one lot. When people start withdrawing cash from the bank and they realize that the bank's saying it's not your money because there is no legal concept as a bank deposit. Legally, that's a loan to the bank. It's not your money in the bank. People are starting to realize this now and they want their money. They want to change into physical metals. They want to cash in their pension. The more that happens, the more the system gets out their control. It's funny because I've been a financial advisor in the system since 92. And people would ask over the years, well, what about the government debt? And my response was always, well, what about it? It never seemed to matter. And so I think there's this, I don't know if it's denial is the word, but it's like you said at the talk and we started with, now it matters that the day of reckoning has really come. And I think in some ways it's hard when people are so used to, because the 2008, you see it one way for sure. Other people see it as, well, this was this thing, it happened, and now life, things just keep going. To really embrace this idea that this is like a pivotal moment in history, the defining point, I mean, I'm there, but I think that's a stretch. And so I guess, I don't know if there's a question in that, it's just kind of an observation. But let me ask you this, I know you touched on it a little bit, I mean, you mentioned voting with your pocketbook. What else can people be doing in their little sphere of influence to prevent this? And then I guess the other question I'd ask you is, what are the signs, maybe they're already existing, but when things are really starting to sort of fall apart, I mean, is there any sense you have of how people could perceive that that aren't necessarily like enmeshed in it on a day-to-day basis? Does that make sense? I would say to be prepared now, because when it happens, if you're too late to the party, you're not going to be able to cash anything. So I think that you need to be aware that it's happening. Need Our instinct as humans is just delegate our responsibility. We love to delegate away our responsibility. And we've delegated our financial responsibility away to pensions, which are even a relatively new phenomenon. These didn't exist before. So take control of your own finance. Really think about, I th- that was one of the benefits, I think, of the lockdowns is that I identified quickly that people were terrified of dying. I'm not terrified. I don't want to, but I'm also nosy, so I kind of want to know what happens. <laughs> but I think they realized that they haven't really lived their life. And a lot of people completely changed their life through this. They realize, I hate my life. So kind of realize why you are here and what are you doing it up, um, for? I think Warren Buffett was saying that we have more now than we've ever had. We have all this technology and all this equipment to make life as easy as possible, but we're still not happy. There's a certain amount of people that greed is their thing, but for the rest of us, it's envy and the need for pretentious wealth. So even though we have everything, we're looking going, well, yours is a little bit better. So I think that that has been pushed on us through this debt-based economy, and that will be freeing to actually get away from uh, it's what's outside that counts and you need to keep in the rat race. I think that lockdown gave a lot of people the opportunity to renegotiate that and go, actually, I'm not going back to that. It's not making me happy. And we know this because antidepressants, prescription of antidepressants is through the roof. So we can all conclude that consumption 
doesn't make us happy. So let's move into something else. Good. And that actually leads me to the last thing I wanted to ask you. But the other part of it is just how can people start to see around them? I mean, you look at the markets and I mean, straight up, I can't give anybody a good reason why the S&P is up, whatever it is, 15, 20% year to date. I mean, fundamentally, there's no reason for that. There is an element, I think, of folks, at least here, that kind of are going, want to go back to the old way of doing things and or that life's going to return to the way it was, whatever that was. But for people that are looking for, I guess, signs of just evidence that things are shifting or falling apart, however dramatic you want me to make it, but how does a person see that? Or maybe a better question, Melissa, I'm sorry, you can see I have a tendency to ramble. Where do people go? What should people be putting their efforts that's a long question. I mean, there is just a wealth of information on the financial advice is something that you really need to take on board yourself. You need to take control of that yourself. If you think of the S&P during the lockdown, if you remember what's going on, that should have been a big red flag to everybody. You're like, hold on. Production has ceased. What's going on? With the UK, and I think it's the same percentages in America, for every pound that exists today, 40 pence of that was created within the past three years. That's more money chasing the same amounts of goods and services. And what I explained about the debt, that they just get more debt to pay off the debt, that's evident in the debt ceiling in America. My idea would be that that would be exponential growth. So that's going to really bloom into something that's a crack up, boom, and collapse. So if you have your money in the stock market, it's probably going to go up over the next couple of months. It's just that one day that everything collapses. So ask yourself, what is wealth and how do I prepare? And am I comfortable losing everything? Because if you don't hold it and it's not actual wealth, it can be taken away from you. So they're just going to keep on. I guess is that the money printer will be turned on around the end of this this year, the start of the following year, because they need to keep people happy. So there'll be more stimulus and, and that's just going to cause more inflation. They're trying to keep a tap on that kind of work, those levers. But people just need to start being aware. And that was the one question that I would ask. Why do you think that um, stocks are going up when the economy shut down? Does that make sense to you? Gold, which has historically been a hedge against inflation, has done nothing. But central banks are batted up in record amounts like never before. And Russia has more or less backed the ruble to gold for years now due to sanctions. It's not moving. The needle's not really moving. On gold, so nothing that should happen is happening. That's a big indicator for me. That's a big indicator. If you lose everything, your health is your wealth. Consider what your wealth is. Have something up by and reconsider what this life experience is because it's going to get very different. It could be a slow descent into poverty, or it could be an overnight if you are not prepared. So you really need to look at. Let's say we do tip into hyperinflation. I don't think so. I think then inflation will continue in food and fuel. The inelastic goods, it can do absolutely nothing about. Um, the deflation will come in the property market, especially with what they're doing with the interest rates, so it's more and more difficult. And here they're attacking landlords. They're trying to do um, a controlled collapse, but it's very difficult because it's a small amount of people doing it. And that's the thing about the free market. It's You might be the smartest person in the room, but you're not smarter than the room. And the room can take a turn that you can't anticipate. Hopefully it's more structured, but you really do need to be prepared. And as Valente says, all else fails, they, they take us to war. So that's the other option. It'll be Taiwan. 
That brings me to the last thing. I know you shared with me, you were a theology major, and I was going to ask you, and again, I hope this is okay, but, and you sort of answered it, but just where God is in all this, because I think, and I love the message, and actually what you shared, there's been kind of a theme with people I've spoken to on this podcast, and that is people who are living their life. It wasn't a goal of mine, but it's kind of just, even people in the financial industry, I've done these interviews with a lot of quant people, not part of the mainstream, typical large cap equity manager, and people have a bit of an integrity about it, a respect for what they do, but they're genuinely doing things that's who they are. And that's been a theme with people who've started their own companies and prison ministers. I've talked to a lot of different people, but I guess that's the thought is I think what you've shared is there's a greater calling for all of us to emerge out of all this. And I hear you talk, and you really articulate it well, Melissa, is just how we've been bludgeoned into this consumption, image, all this material way of living. I don't know, any final thoughts just kind of on the spiritual angle of this? Because I think it's critical, actually. Well, if you think, if we taught our kids, because there's nothing wrong with having nice things because they're great. Thoughts and they can be beautiful and as long as you enjoy them because happiness isn't getting what you want, it's continuing to want what you have. But what if we taught our kids instead of financial bank balance, we also taught them that they had to have a spiritual bank balance. So every time you do something good, that puts into that. And every time you do something that's not so good, it's taken away from it. Because when you die, we're here for a relatively short time. It's important that we do what we need to do. But when you die, all that you get to take with you is the love you gave and the love you received. And you should live your life accordingly because if you want to know what you own, die tomorrow. We've all been to funerals and we've all seen the same coffin. None of it you come into this world and with nothing that you leave with the love you gave and the love you received. Well, that's a rising note of hope to end on. I really I have to say I appreciate that we had this time today. I really am grateful that there's people like you. One of the cool things for me, I guess, personally, has been this kind of international network of people I'm meeting that are speaking their truth. I'm sure, you know, and I won't get into that, but I'm sure, you know, you mentioned you've had some censoring and some pushback, I'm sure. And yet it's comforting to know it's sort of the world becomes smaller and you start to realize how connected we really are. And it's just encouraging. You know, we all have our areas we can influence people one way or another or share. And like I said, I appreciate your time and what you're doing. It's been an honor to speak with you, Melissa. And so thank you for joining me today on Upthinking Finance. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. 
the purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.